0: I'm Nick Spencer, and welcome to our fourth podcast in our six-part series focused on biodiversity. This podcast focuses on the interactions between agriculture, soil, livestock farming, and biodiversity. We also look at potential solutions using regenerative agriculture, tech, and pastoral farming methods, as well as the potential benefits from the emerging food tech sector. One of the particular impacts from agriculture is excessive nitrogen compounds, which is creating a nitrogen crisis. Nitrogen, a key nutrient for plants, is contained in fertilisers, but in excess is a toxic pollutant. Agriculture is a large source of nitrogen emissions, especially from fertilisers which are washed off from fields into water sources. Ammonia vapours from livestock, such as animal waste and biomass, is also a source of nitrogen. This can damage plants and cause soil to become acidic, which prevents the absorption of nutrients by plants. As agricultural operations expand and intensify, nitrogen exceeds ecological risk thresholds in many places. In dunes, bogs and the heathlands, plant diversity has decreased as invasive species love nitrogen move in. This in turn contributes to a loss of insect and bird biodiversity. Some experts have suggested this can be addressed through circular agriculture. Farms should only produce as much manure as they can use to fertilise nearby fields. Cows should graze on pasture rather than be fed nitrogen-rich imported soy. And pigs and poultry should eat food waste. That would, however, lead to fewer animals. And if there are fewer animals, humans will have to return to alternative sources, plant-based, for protein. In this podcast, we're going to hear from Andrew Vorsey, who's responsible for strategy and business development at Soil Capital, who spoke to you and Murray at Federated Homeries in 2019. We'll hear from Mark Lewis, who runs Regenerative Agriculture Fund, Trailhead Capital Fund. Mark will tell us some of the innovation that he is seeing in this area and the potential for regeneration that the land holds. We also talked to Aarti Ramachandran, Director, Research and Engagements at FAIR, who discussed the impact of lifestyle farming on biodiversity. Finally, we look at other innovations in the agriculture arena and the latest advances in plant-based protein. Let us first hear from Andrew Vorsi. He was asked about the growing number of challenges that agriculture is facing due to, in part, the increased demand for food due to growing population and changing diets.
1: So the conventional, normal, large-scale farmers that we work with day in, day out across Europe and further afield are increasingly recognising that our modern industrial approach to agriculture isn't working for them, and it's not working for those that they serve. And right at the heart of this is the observable fact that our modern industrial approach to agriculture, which is heavily mechanized, uh, involves turning the soil regularly, and involves a chemical-led approach to fertility, is fundamentally degenerative in terms of its impact on the soil. It allows for soil erosion by wind and water, and it allows for the systematic reduction in the natural fertility of the soil. And this has pretty profound consequences, as you say, on on economic, health, and environmental levels. Economically, over the last decade in Europe, the net farm profitability of Europe's farms on average has reduced by 25%. And fundamentally, that is because farmers operating in a conventional system are having to use more and more increasingly expensive inputs, synthetic fertilizers and agrochemicals, in order to stand still, to make up for the loss of soil quality and produce the same yields they did the year before. So we have a profitability crisis at farm level, but we also have some very significant what economists call externalities as a result of conventional uh, or modern industrial farming. We have human health consequences where there are now increasingly uh, serious concerns about the links between the toxicity of our natural environments as a result of agrochemical use and various human diseases, including cancers. There are significant concerns about the nutritional value and density of the food that we're producing and consuming today. And then when we think environmentally, we have agriculture today being a significant part of the climate problem, 25% or, or so of global greenhouse gas emissions, a significant driver of biodiversity loss because modern industrial systems, in order to focus primarily on yield production, thrive on monocultures without any other life in the system. And as I've said, we have consequences on the fundamental structure and quality of the soil. In fact, some of the statistics are quite alarming, just to round off on the soil status. Over the last 40 years, globally, we've lost something like a third of our arable farmland to processes of land and soil degradation. And while the precise numbers are never true in any one place, soil and agronomic scientists look at our modern industrial approach to farming and come up with statistics like we have 60 good harvests left if we continue to degrade the soil in the current way. Now, to repeat, that is a statistic which is useful for understanding the direction of travel rather than the precise uh, end of the world. But it tells you something pretty stark about how our current way of producing food is delivering economically, human health-wise, and environmentally. Andrew was asked about what was the alternative
0: regenerative solution and how farmers should respond.
1: So the good news is the solutions are already out there, being adopted and practiced first and foremost by farmers, not by anyone else imposing the change on them. And fundamentally, as you say, regenerative agriculture is a set of farming and grazing practices that aims by design to rebuild soil health, or rebuild the life in our soils. Everything from the bigger creepy crawlies, the worms our children love, down to the invisible microorganisms, the bacteria and the fungi. These are, there's a wide variety of farming practices that allow us to rebuild soil, and they fall under a set of common principles that is almost universally true regardless of soil type, climate type, and farm system type. And those principles are to reduce agrochemical use with a view to eliminating it, keeping the disturbance of soil ploughing to an absolute minimum, keeping soil covered throughout the year, ideally with living roots, maximising the role of biodiversity in a functional way for the farm. So not as an afterthought, But moving away from monoculture designs into intercropping and relay cropping, where you can have multiple crops in the field at the same time, bringing livestock back into arable systems and so on. And finally, respecting local context, whether that's climate or soil type, adapting these principles to their local realities rather than taking a cookie cutter approach. So we see farmers across the world actually adopting these practices, driven By a number of things, but not least out of desperation because of the collapse of their former systems financially and operationally. And now what we're starting to see, which is very exciting, is not only farmers connecting these practices with their profitability, but those beyond the farm gate, the food buyers, investors, governments, starting in different ways to acknowledge that building soil health is actually going to be core to the food system that we need.
0: We then turn to Mark Lewis of Trailhead Capital Fund, a regenerative agricultural fund. We asked Mark about the relationship between soil, agriculture, and biodiversity.
2: Yeah, you know, we're in what I would call, or what many people call, the, the sixth great extinction event, which is you know we're losing species uh, at a relatively unprecedented rate. And in nature, you know, diversity and biodiversity are paramount, and that's what makes healthy ecosystems tick, and so losing one species, you know, is connected to all of the other species, and we, I think, don't fully understand how all the implications of of that biodiversity loss are going to be, but, you know, there are no monocultures in nature. Everything is dependent on everything else, and, you know, the way in which we're currently practicing agriculture, for the most part, is... Harmful to a lot of species and is oftentimes in a monoculture setting, which is not mimicking the intelligence of nature very well. And then, you know, when you're spraying herbicides and pesticides and tilling the soil, you're killing not only the harmful insects, but you're also killing the the beneficial insects and some of the beneficial weeds and plants. And for sure, a lot of the beneficial microbiome. Know, bacteria and fungal networks in the soil. So that's our focus at Trailhead Capital is, you know, revitalizing soil health which we think has the dual benefits of helping to stem the climate crisis because it's you know well proven that you can sequester atmospheric carbon if you move toward more regenerative agriculture practices and then the also, you know, the other added benefit is we can help stem the human health crisis where there's, you know, record numbers of preventable diseases from obesity to diabetes to, you know, and then I think if you look at why have cancer rates accelerated so quickly, Alzheimer's, all these other diseases, and there's mounting evidence, I think that points to the food that we're putting in our bodies and the way in which that food is grown. And so, you know biodiversity is one of the reasons to shift the paradigm in food and agriculture but there are several others as well
0: mark also believes that the soil and agriculture can be tracked to every one of the 17 sdgs one of mark's own titles is soil steward at a family farm i asked him what this is
2: yes yeah, so at lewis family farm we are really you know focused on the soil as the foundation for you know, how you grow healthy, nutrient-dense, high-yielding crops. So we're certified organic, and so we don't use synthetic nitrogen or other synthetic fertilizers. So in order to have healthy, good-yielding crops, you know soil health is paramount. So when we started out, the soil organic matter was around 1.3%. The first year, we spread 80 semi-loads of compost, with the intention of supercharging the soil biology and feeding the microbiome. Um, we've moved more towards perennial crops. We've done livestock integration, cover cropping, green manure, all with the intention of building soil organic matter, building soil health. And we've actually been tracking the, the yield and the relative feed quality, particularly of our alfalfa, which we sell you know, the organic hay to a local dairy and we get paid based on the relative feed quality, which is a nutrient density measurement of the alfalfa hay. And our relative feed quality has been increasing as our soil organic matter has been increasing. So that's kind of been our philosophy and you know, it's not, there are a lot of challenges that come with farming organically. We definitely have weed pressure that is difficult. And, you know, sometimes our best tool is to till. And to to rip the weeds, you know, which is in some sense, in some instances, you know, is there's a release of carbon when you're tilling the ground. So, you know, the holy grail, I think for a lot of us is no-till organic and we're not there yet, but that's one of the things that Trailhead Capital wants to invest in is our innovative solutions to get us to uh, economically and environmentally viable, no-till organic agricultural solutions. I asked him about the time taken for this regenerative process. So we purchased the farm in 2013 and that's when it was about 1.3% soil organic matter on average. It's not, that's a a rough number because we actually have, I mean, just within our 350 acres, we have two center pivots. One center pivot is a little bit lower lying and is more of a clay loam soil. And the other pivot is up a little bit up, up on a hill and is much sandier. And it's much harder to build soil organic matter in the sandier soil. So these are all averages, but over a six year period, we went from 1.3% to 2.7% on average. And if you, you know feed all that into a database called Comet Farm, which we have done in conjunction with, we're, we're part of a pilot program with a group called Nori, which is trying to build a Ethereum blockchain based carbon removal marketplace to pay farmers who can prove that they're sequestering atmospheric carbon. You input all of our information into their tool, you know, it shows that we've sequestered a few thousand metric tons of CO2 equivalent over that, you know, six, seven, eight year timeframe. So yeah, it's remarkable how quickly you can heal the land. And, you know, it's just like when we get a cut on our finger and you know, it, it heals. I mean, it's that's what regeneration is to me is healing, the land healing human health and with that i mean the biodiversity piece is key healing the you know the, the microbiome and there are just millions and millions of species of bacteria and viruses and beneficial microbes and fungal networks that we're just beginning to understand and the the rhizosphere where That microbiome meets the plant roots is a really exciting new area of scientific study. But it's, yeah, to me, that's what regeneration is, is is starting to understand, have a better conception of how we are, you know, we are tied to the soil. Humans and humus have the same, you know, root, Latin, you know, root. And without, you know, this thin layer of topsoil on this planet, you could argue there wouldn't be life on this planet, or certainly there wouldn't be human life and there wouldn't be modern agriculture and modern civilization. Mark, what are the innovative
0: solutions that you'd say you're using in your portfolio? And can you describe a little more about a company using sort of virtual fencing to ensure healthy capital rotation and what that actually means?
2: Yes. So Vence is the company you're referring to and it's a virtual fencing solution. So that's one of our first three portfolio companies. So it's kind of like remote controlled cows. So you can actually control the movement of the herd with uh, GPS. So you actually put a collar around the cow's necks and then that uh, you use Pavlovian signals to keep them within a virtual fence line. So what we're really excited about is we think this is a low cost solution for ranchers, you know, land managers around the world to implement holistic management, you know, multi-paddock intensive rotational grazing methodologies, which have been proven to build soil organic matter, build soil health, and therefore sequester atmospheric carbon. So our other two uh, portfolio companies out of the gate here are Telesense, which is a amazing hardware software solution. So it's a a hardware internet of things probe that you, or orb that you put into a grain bin or a barge, and it gives you real time atmospherics data. So it can alert you if there's, if the humidity is getting to a level that where you might have a a mold issue and they're actually using artificial intelligence and machine learning to get more uh, predictive analytics around grain quality throughout the supply chain. So there's a huge amount of food waste happens between harvest and processing. So it just in the storage and transportation of the raw commodities. So Telesense is a solution for that. And then another company is called HowGood. And this is a database that these two brothers, Alexander and Arthur Gillette, have been building since 2006. And we believe it's the world's largest impact and sustainability metric database around food ingredients. So if you have like the Chipotle app on your phone, you actually drill down into the greenhouse gas profile of the carnitas versus the barbacoa versus the tofu, or get a picture of the total water intake of the brown rice versus the white rice.
0: And now we focus on animal food production. I spoke with R.T. Ramachandran, Director of Research of Engagements at FAIR. FAIR is a network of institutional investors representing over $40 trillion of assets. It conducts research into the risks and opportunities that animal food production represents. I started by asking about the connection between livestock and biodiversity.
3: We slaughter about 70 billion animals every year. So, You know, in the last 50 years, the number of people on the planet has doubled, but the amount of meat that we consume has tripled. And so this has obviously had enormous consequences for the planet and for all species, right? So when you're talking about biodiversity today, obviously a key part of biodiversity is species diversity. And one of the issues with our eating habits is that it is resulting in the slow erosion of of species diversity all the mammals on earth today uh, 96% are livestock and humans so about 60% of all mammals today are just livestock and about 70% of all birds are chicken and poultry so sort of our food habits in in a sense have transformed life on earth uh, in a pretty fundamental way
0: i then asked about the broader impacts from livestock farming
3: the mechanism by which we're seeing biodiversity impacts are varied so Again, I mean, when you talk about livestock farming today, livestock farming, including feed production, it accounts for about three-fourths of all agricultural land and about a third of of the ice-free surface of the planet. 33% of crop lands today are used for animal agriculture. 65% of of agricultural expansion in, in recent decades has been associated with the increased production of animal products. So a large part of the farming system today goes towards producing feed for animals that are then fed to humans, right? And whether that's land-based animals or farmed fish animals. And so this can impact biodiversity in in multiple ways. I mean, when you talk about land-based farming, certainly manure and the byproducts from animal farming have significant consequences for communities that surround these large industrial farms. You know, it has consequences for uh, soil health. You know, the drugs that go into animal farming today have consequences for biodiversity and for for the health of humans. And it's not just animal sort of land-based farming. When you talk about fish farming, for example, issues range from sea lice to fish escapes to the composition of feed, you know, for because of course, you know, we are today predominantly producing carnivorous fish like salmon, which require fish in their diets and that has you know is resulting in the collapse of, of Farage fisheries worldwide.
0: And there are also the deforestation impacts.
3: When you talk about deforestation in tropical areas, that's primarily caused by either clearing land for cattle farming or to produce commodities that then go into into feed for, for animal farming. So a significant percentage of, of soy Farming in Brazil, for example, which is one of the leading causes of deforestation in the Amazon, is directed towards uh, the majority of that soy production goes into animal farming, and so they're sort of the key commodities of that go into the system today and go into animal farming today result in in you know extensive. Soil degradation, extensive land use change, and of course, have enormous consequences both for local ecosystems, but also for climate change, because of course they they exacerbate climate change in a significant way.
0: Arti, are communities noting the impact of intensive livestock farming?
3: So we've been tracking this issue of livestock farming, especially from a you know how it impacts local communities, for years now, and we've seen that. There is growing pushback against the opening of new farms because of the impacts that it has on on local water resources, on the health of these communities. It produces like millions of pounds of manure and effluence and the disposal of it is is pretty rudimentary, really. The industry hasn't really figured out a way to manage this waste effectively. Most hawk farms today end up having these huge literally holes in the ground called lagoons where they direct all the waste and periodically the manure is, is sprayed out into nearby farms or neighboring farms and so what ends up happening is in addition to synthetic fertilizers that are are applied to these farms you've got an over application of manure and so runoff from these farms results in eutrophication it results in deadly algal blooms it does pollute you know, many waterways and it's a significant contributor to more than 400 dead zones. It causes a lot of issues for for people who live around these farms, right? And so in addition to what I just mentioned in terms of water impairment, there's a huge problem with ammonia emissions and that impacts it. There's a lot of, you know, there's again, it's a source of particulate matter and all of this has significant impacts for the health of people that live next to these farms
0: and are there examples of best practice?
3: There are some best practice examples emerging, but you know, the majority of farming today in developed markets continues to probably originate from intensive industrial farming systems. Certainly that's that's the case in the US. I think what we are seeing is in small pockets, you're seeing some smaller, sort of new generation farmers. Trialing ideas that are linked to pasture-based systems, where they used alternate grazing systems, where they integrate more tree plantings, there's crop rotation, there's using soil as a mechanism to to sequester carbon, you know, reduced reliance on fertilizers, pesticides, no antibiotics when it comes to animal farming you know, maybe altering the composition of feed. So that is both at the feed production side, but also from a, you know, that has a better output in terms of of waste that's generated and lower carbon emissions as well. So, I mean, there are some interesting, innovative ideas at play, but I think we still see this, and and we've seen this in, in some of our companies. I mean, there are companies that we cover, as I said, we cover about 60 public equities, the largest meat dairy and farm fish companies and we're seeing some examples crop up of regenerative agriculture but they remain at a very small scale uh, you know certainly primarily in the pilot phase for many companies and so we've not seen any large scale up and certainly not to the extent that will be needed to fundamentally transform or shift away from the biodiversity and climate change impacts that we've discussed
0: what would you say investors can do?
3: To put it very simply, I mean, part of it. what we've been trying to do for the last five years since we were founded is to get investors to start thinking about what the risks are and to use that information both to look at their investments, but also in their stewardship activities with with companies. So certainly, if the only investment thesis continues to remain that meat consumption is going to dramatically scale up. And so it's a good investment just based on that. I mean, I think that then is is completely ignoring some of the fundamental risks that we've talked about today, whether that's from a climate change perspective or a biodiversity perspective or, you know, in, increasing regulation around some of these and, and consumer scrutiny around some of these, these issues. So we think you know there's an enormous opportunity the food system today is it's undergoing a transformation there's an enormous opportunity because finally there's a lot of disruptive potential that's coming through from the alternative protein side and so for investors really it is to consider whether currently you know where they are placing their capital if it is actually going towards companies that are cognizant of these trends are responding to them are making investments whether it's through more investments in sustainability interventions or you know investing in new technologies and r&d or coming up with their own brand of plant based product lines or whatever else it is i mean how are they responding to that and so to, so it's for investors to start thinking about how the companies in their portfolio are responding to these trends and and you know whether they're demonstrating the right strategic foresight that will continue to give them some competitive advantage.
0: Finally, do we need to change as consumers?
3: There are more humans today than there ever were before. And each sort of all of us are consuming more animal proteins. And so clearly that, the, you know, there is a a problem in in terms of the equation there, right? I think the question is that there needs to be moderation when it comes to meat consumption. That, you know, we need to move towards a food system that is primarily plant-based and where there is animal farming, it, is, you know, it incorporates the true cost of animal farming rather than ignoring the, the environmental and social aspects as, as industrial farming does today. So I think that's a fundamental truth that you know, regardless of where you get your meat from, I think part of it is having to moderate meat consumption has to be part of the, the discussion or part of the solution.
0: According to data gathered by the Good Food Institute, the U.S. plant-based retail market reached $7 billion in 2020, which reflected growth of 27%, almost twice the broader retail food sale growth. This has been a trend. U.S. sales of plant-based foods grew 43% from 2018 to 2020, compared to just 70% growth for retail food sales over the same period. Furthermore, a record $2.1 billion was invested in plant-based food companies in 2020, highlighting this growing interest in plant-based foods from both consumers and investors. Plant-based meat alone accounted for $1.4 billion of sales in 2020, with much of this growth driven by refrigerated plant-based meat. Refrigerated plant-based meat is taking an increasing large share of the plant-based meat category. We ask Merov Orin, founder of the ACT Food Tech Hub in Tel Aviv. What advances she was excited
4: about in that area? First, it's those two words, it's food and tech, which means innovation and in food. But if I'll be a bit more, <laughs> a bit more than that, I'll give some examples. It could be reduction of sugar in the food. It could be alternative protein, because today, you know, people, are, if we we'll look to 30, 40 years from today, there wouldn't be enough food in the world for all of us. So everybody's looking for different ways to get the food, to make it much healthier. The millennials today, they really care about what they eat. Of course we do as well, but the younger ones are much more than that. And they want to to know what's in the chips that they eat or what's in the milk and so on. So we work with startups and help them take their business to the next level. We usually work with startups that already have the technology They've done already the what we call the technology due diligence, and we help them take their business to the next level, to the go-to market, to, get, to raise money, and to get their product to the shelf. I can give you some examples just so we understand what we're talking about. We're working with a company that does milk, yogurts, and cheese from chickpea, and it looks and tastes exactly like real cheese and real milk, and as if it came from the cow. Or we're working with a company called Tutti Puffs. They, do, they say they puff the unpuffable. Imagine that you can make it from avocado, from sweet potato, from other stuff that are healthy, and you can make popcorn out of them, which is amazing. So they have the technology to do that. So this is what we call food tech.
0: Fascinating indeed. So that wraps up our deeper dive into soil and agriculture. What did we learn? Well, firstly, that the threat to soil and plant and animal diversity is real. Secondly, as we move forward towards circular agricultural methods, we'll be forced into less intensive agricultural methods, which will have to lead us to consume less meat and look increasingly to plant-based substitutes. And thirdly, technological advances are rapid and promising, and we're seeing this revolution happen within our shelves and also attracting the interest of investors. I'm Nick Spencer. Thank you for listening to this biodiversity podcast series, a collaborative project between the international business of Federated Hermes and Gordian Advice.